morning again. A lot of ground to cover today, so please take your Bibles and turn with me to Genesis chapter 45. That's all the way toward the front of your Bible, the first book, the book of beginnings. And we are in the third of four weeks in the story of Joseph. And so today uh, we're going to cover chapters 42 to 45, but really we're going to focus in, laser focus in on chapter 45. So I want you to think about this morning the issues, the related issues of forgiveness and reconciliation. Forgiveness and reconciliation, of course, which sit at the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ and at the heart of the faith that we hold dear. So I'm going to read verse, or rather, chapter 45, and we'll summarize in very short compass verses 40, or chapters 42, 43, and 44 in your Probably wondering if I can do anything in short compass, but we will. So let us hear now the word of the Lord is inspired by his spirit. Genesis chapter 45. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go away from me, go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. Now, Joseph is in Egypt, right? Joseph was arrested, or Joseph was in jail, then Pharaoh got him out of jail. He was able to, uh, to uh, interpret Pharaoh's dreams, and now he's the prime minister of Egypt. And so He's not seen his brothers for a long time. We'll summarize that in just a minute, but that's the context. And so Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me. And they came near and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be dismayed or distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me here before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. If you're going to highlight anything, that's it. It was not you who sent me here, but God. And verse 6, he has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all of Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt, and of all that you have seen. Hurry, and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. When the, when the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come, it pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this, load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan and take your father and your households and come to me. 
and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. The sons of Israel did so. And Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes, but to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father he sent as follows, ten donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt and ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away and said as they departed, he said to them, I love this, do not quarrel along the way. In other words, hey, you guys get along. <laughs> I love that detail. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they, said, they told him, Joseph is still alive and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb for he did not believe them. But when he told them all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is alive. I will go and see him before I die. And this is the word of the Lord. And the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will endure forever. Let's pray. God, I pray this morning that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O oh, Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Grant us grace to see great things from your word. Transform us, Lord, from one level of glory to another. Work in us and build your church in us and through us, Lord. The gates of hell might not overcome it. For Jesus' sake and in his name we pray. Amen. And so now we come to what I'm saying is there and back again. Joseph, the favorite son of Jacob, grandson of our father Abraham, the father of our faith. We started back in Genesis 37. Just a quick recap. Joseph, the favorite son of Jacob, had dreams. He dreamed that his brothers, his 11 brothers, who of course are the, the, the tribes of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel, the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel, they dreamed that they would bow down before him. Of course, the brothers did not like this at all. The brother, our daddy's favorite son, now says we're going to worship him. He had these two different dreams, and they were interpreted as, you're going to bow down before me. So the brothers go to pasture the flock, to shepherd the flock. Shepherd the flock, and he sends Joseph there to check on them. The favorite son, going to check on the boys, see how they're doing, right? See if they're doing their work. And so they come, and the brothers decide to kill him. Now that's hatred for your brother, right? They decide to kill him. And so they change their mind a couple times. They throw him into a pit. They draw him up to starve to death, presumably. Take him up out of the pit. Sell him to a group of Midianite, Ishmaelite traders who come by. And he winds up being a slave in Egypt. Things are not going well for Joseph, who is the centerpiece of the story of Jacob. This all story is about Jacob, remember. And so last week, we learned that Joseph's been given a, the ability to interpret dreams. He interprets the dreams of the, the baker and the cup, uh, the, the, the baker and the, the cup bearer of the king. 
that winds up getting him out of jail and in the house of the king, Pharaoh. He becomes prime minister of Egypt. I'm summarizing a lot here in case you missed it. I didn't watch the video we produced this week, which is intended to do what I just did. So watch the video. Open the email. We're going to keep harping on that until you watch the video. It's only two to four minutes, so it won't take up a lot of your time. But it saves some time. And so Joseph is in Egypt in 20 years. He arises in an unlikely, one of the most unlikely scenes. He arises to become the prime minister of Egypt. The brothers are out of the picture. Well, they come back into the picture in today's text in chapter 42. Brothers come back. I want to call them there and back again. There's going to be the centerpiece, the, the backdrop of this. Seven years of famine, seven years of plenty, seven years of famine was one of the dreams, interpretation of the dreams, of the dream. Seven years of plenty, seven years of famine. Now there's seven years of famine. Joseph is prime minister of Egypt, and he has collected all the food during the seven years of plenty. God has taken him there to save his people. So that's where we are now. Seven years of drought, seven years of famine. The brothers come back because they're hungry. They've got to eat, right? And they've got to have food. So they go down to Egypt to buy food. And who will they encounter but their brother? Pick up in verse 42, or chapter 42. The famine has taken hold in Egypt far beyond and far beyond Egypt and has really swallowed up the entire ancient world. Not just Egypt and the famine, but the famine has taken up the whole ancient world. And so the scene here in, in chapter 42 shifts from Egypt back to Canaan, where Joseph and his brothers and his father lived. Jacob, Joseph's father, and their 11 sons, Joseph's brothers, Jacob sends his sons, Joseph's brothers, to Egypt to buy food. Jacob makes Benjamin stay behind to protect him. It's clear that Jacob's into favoritism, that whereas Joseph was the favorite son, now he's dead, at least in Jacob's mind. He doesn't know about these shenanigans. So Benjamin's become the favorite son now, so he's stayed behind so nothing bad will happen to him. Joseph is prime minister of Egypt. His brothers arrive in Egypt, but he treats them like strangers. Very odd, he's not seen them in probably, we think, 20 years. Of course, their appearance has changed. Joseph was 17 when he came to Egypt. He's 37 to 40 somewhere. So, you know, you look a lot different. You know, you see those people you went to high school with and you look different, and they look different. You've been out of high school as long as I have. You look really different. So you don't recognize each other. This is kind of what's going on here. Joseph does nothing to greet them. They've thrown him into a pit. They've, they've thought about killing him. They nearly killed him, and they sold him into slavery. He doesn't greet them. They don't recognize him. And the text tells us that the brothers do what? They bow before Joseph. What did Joseph dream? You're going to come and bow before me. And they bow before him. It comes true, right? And Joseph accuses his brothers. He's going to have a little fun with them, you know. He accuses them of being foreign spies. Oh, you're here to spy out the land, to spy out the weakness since there's such a big drought going on, right? For political purposes, maybe, or war, or something like that. You're, going to, you're here to, to, to spy out the weakness of the land. He toys with them. He asks about their father and if there are other brothers. Of course, they try to assure him they're not spies, but Joseph devises a couple of tests, chapter 42, for his brothers. Verse 13 of chapter 42. 
And they said, We, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. In other words, one has died. Joseph has died. Joseph said to them, (laughs) they're talking to Joseph, the one who is no more. Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be be tested. By the life of Pharaoh you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here, Benjamin. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested. Whether there is truth in you, or else by the life of Pharaoh surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. He's going to test them. Go bring back, as if you're telling the truth, you have another brother named Benjamin, bring him. Well, eventually he lets them go back. All of them go. All the brothers go back, return to Canaan. Except one, Simeon, which Joseph says, you're going to have to leave one behind with me. It's kind of like a, a down payment to make sure you're going to come back or you're telling the truth. And so they load their donkeys with the grain they had bought and they head back to Canaan, leaving Simeon behind. Which, of course, Joseph turns, turns for allowing them to return to Canaan. Reuben rebukes the brothers, thinking God is judging them for what we did, judging us for what we did all those years ago to Joseph. God's surely judging us. We're in big trouble. Payday, someday, is here for us, he thinks. So they arrive back in Canaan, they discover that the money they've just paid Joseph for the grain is in their sacks. Oh no, we're in big trouble. Our money is in our sacks. What are we going to do? We look like, now we look like thieves. And we know we've sold Joseph into slavery. And they have a robust belief in God, obviously. And God sees this and they know that. Chapter 43 comes. The famine continues to worsen, according to verse 1. And that forces Jacob to send his sons back to Egypt. Back there to fetch Simeon, who had to stay behind on Joseph's orders. And to get more food. In chapter 43, another brother, the one whose royal tribe would produce the Messiah... Judah convinces Jacob to allow them to take Benjamin with them this time to Egypt. He finally says, okay, I will stand good for him. you got to let Benjamin go back or we won't, this dude won't let us buy grain. So Joseph said he needed them to bring Benjamin, remember? To prove they weren't spies. Of course, Joseph knows they're not spies. The brothers are skeptical in Egypt. They, Joseph unexpectedly invites them for a meal. Hey, come over for dinner. Really? You know, they're really worried by now. We've done all these things, and the prime minister's having us over for dinner. It's not often we get invited to a prime minister's house for dinner, right? He says, well, this, this must, the brothers say this must be a ploy because the money, they know about the money being left in the sack. They think we're thieves. This is, we're in big trouble. This is our last supper. Probably. But here's what's going to happen. Joseph is going to disclose his identity at this supper. But first, he tests his brothers again. Chapter 44. He continues to disguise his identity from his brothers. You can imagine how hard this would be. You've not seen your brothers for 20 years and you're having to act like you, uh, you don't know who they are. I mean, at some point he's going to be you know, at least uh, tempted to snicker about this. You know, like, <laughs> this is crazy. I'm really getting it over on these guys. He could do anything, and keep this in mind, he could do anything he wanted to his brothers. He could pay them back, right? He could throw them in a pit. He could sell them to traitors. He's the prime minister. He could do anything he wanted to. We'll see what he does. So they have a meal together, and Joseph sends them away out of my presence. Just, I can't take it, as you read in chapter 45. But he sends them back, and he 
instructs, back to Canaan, instructs the steward of his house to secretly place his silver cup in the sack of Benjamin, the youngest one. So we can later accuse Benjamin of theft and haul him back to Egypt. And so Joseph again sends the steward, tells him to place the money that they paid for the food back in their sacks. He does this again. So the drama builds. Joseph sends the steward after the brothers to stop them and accuse them of stealing his silver cup and the money. Imagine it's like a scene out of Bonanza or something like those old westerns, you know. It's, you know, kind of see that dun 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 You know, he's chasing them down and there, I can just see this, you know, and finally catches up with them. He pulls the stagecoach over like he's going to rob it. I can just, you can kind of see this, you know. And so Joe, the steward says, you've stolen my master's cup, the cup he used to practice divination to tell the future. Of course, he doesn't practice divination, but that's what they use those cups for. And we've got to play the ruse all the way through. So Joseph threatens to detain Benjamin in Egypt for his thievery. So we hear this long impassioned speech, which we won't read, from Judah, who demands to become Joseph's slaves as a substitute for Benjamin. Judah says, if we return home, my father's gray, gray hairs will go down to Sheol. In other words, it's going to kill him. He's going to die young if we go home without Benjamin. I swore I'd take care of Benjamin, the youngest, and now you're going to make us go home without him. We can't do this. It will kill him. We see Judah's had a change of heart here since we last met him back in, or we met him first, rather, back in chapter 37. It's changed profoundly, right? Because he's the one who proposed selling his brother into slavery. So he apparently has love for his little brother and compassion for his father. And chapter 44 concludes and chapter 45 opens with Joseph at the breaking point of revealing his identity to his brothers. And he does. So that brings us up to our text today. You got all that. All that, right? At the breaking point, he's going to reveal who he is and he does. He can't control himself in verse 1. He sends everyone away. He's overcome by emotion. He's having a meltdown, we would say here. And through tears, he blurts out, I am Joseph. Can you imagine the brothers? They thought they were rid of this guy, this dreamer. Can you imagine? You're who? No, there's no way. You're not Joseph because you know, he dressed in royal garb. No way. 20 years. No way, you're Joseph. And he said, is my father still alive? I want to know about his dad. I don't blame him. Look at his brother's initial reaction in verse 3 of chapter 45. We're in 45 now. But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. They're kind of arrogant. They're like, oh boy, here we go. This guy is back. Joseph is back. They're going to be glad he's back very, very soon. I'm not sure how to take this, and most commentators aren't but their attitude seems to be man I thought we killed this guy they didn't seem relieved or impressed but look how Joseph responds back in verse 4 so Joseph said to his brothers come near me please come near and they came near and this is the heart of our whole the whole sermon today right here they came near and he said, I am your brother Joseph whom you sold into Egypt. You did this terrible thing to me. That's how I got here, remember? And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. 
God sent me before you. Here it is, right here. God sent me before you to preserve you for you a remnant on earth and to keep you alive for you, many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God, God's providence, God's sovereignty. Here it is right here. You didn't do it. There's one behind you who's sovereign over you, who rules over you. God did it. It was not you who sent me here, but God, he has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph. Imagine the father, imagine when Jacob heard this, uh, Joseph, I thought he was dead. God has made me Lord of all of Egypt, come down now to me and do not tarry. God did it. I mean, here's how Joseph understands it. And really, this is what we most need to take home from the whole story of Joseph. If you missed it, here it is. If you like summaries, here it is. Don't tune out, okay? But here it is. I like summaries. All the evil done to him by his brothers was part of God's secret plan. This invisible hand we're talking about, the providence of God, part of his secret plan, God's secret plan for the good not only of Joseph, but of his sinful brothers. They did it. And it's going to benefit them and Joseph, these evil acts. Do you see this? This is how God works. These are those redemptive reversals I talked about in the introductory sermon a few weeks ago. Things are not always as they seem in God's economy. And that means in your life, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ too, things aren't always how they seem. It may seem terrible right now, but it may be God's doing the very thing that's going to be for your best and for his glory. Wow. We could just stop right there, couldn't we? And just go home. But we shan't know that, right? I mean, this is the New Testament version of Romans eight twenty eight. God causes all things to work together for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purposes. All things, all things, all things, none accepted, none at all. In your life, in my life, and it may be dark, but the darkness is ordained by God for your good and His glory. Everything. So relax, <laughs> right? We can relax. We can trust him. Joseph trusted him. We're going to spend a lot more time on this truth next week in our final sermon on the story of Joseph. But Joseph sees God's hand of providence behind their actions and behind his journey to Egypt. He says, God sent me here before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth. That remnant on earth, it's clear that he has faith in God. He has faith. He knows about his great-grandfather Abraham and the covenant God made with him. He's one of the covenant people of God, and he has faith in that. He's continuing to have faith. His faith endures in that, in him, in God's promises. And the Bible is full of what? For us, it's full of promises. And they endure because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The same God we worship is the God of this story, the God of all of history, a remnant. God's preserving a remnant. That's what's happening, and Joseph knows that. And the remnant right here, you're the remnant. You know that? You're the remnant. So I've never been called that. You are now. You're the remnant. The church is a remnant. That's us. He trusted fully God would keep his promises and understood his being sent to Egypt, even through many dangerous toils and snares as part of God's plan. The famine is two years old, and there's five years to go. Joseph's about 39, 40. Pharaoh's delighted to meet Joseph's family. Gives them a royal welcome, graciously invites them to fetch their father and come live in Egypt and the best of the land, live off the fat of the land. Can you imagine that? Wow, what a turn of events. 
Then verse 24 says, Joseph sent his brothers away, and he said, as they're leading to them, don't quarrel along the way. You know what he's thinking, or at least I think I know what he's thinking. He's thinking, you know what? They're going to have to come up with some kind of story to explain to their father how it is that I'm still alive and I'm now prime minister of Egypt. Remember, they said, well, your son Joseph, this is his robe. It's been torn to bits, been torn to pieces, and there's blood all over it. He's been, surely he's been killed. They've got to come up with a story, and they're going to quarrel back here. Let's tell him this, don't tell him this, tell him, tell him, tell him. They're going to be, you know, as we used to say, they're going to come up with some kind of cock and bull story. They have to. I'm a dad. I want to know, why did you do this? What's behind this? What's really behind this? So they're probably going to be tempted to quarrel over who committed what sin and selling Joseph down the river into Egypt. You did it. It was my idea. Was your... You're the one who put in the pit. Well, you want to kill him. I'm not as bad as you. Don't argue. And so when the brothers arrive back in Canaan, Jacob doesn't believe him. Would you believe him? All right, here we go. This is, this is ridiculous. He doesn't believe him. Doesn't believe Joseph's still alive. He wants to go to him ASAP. I will go and see him before I die. Probably a heavy dose of skepticism. And now we're going to see, or we have seen as we've read this, what happens when Joseph's brothers get together. You think Joseph would at least scold them a little lightly, right? That's not what happens. What does Joseph do? He forgives them. What? He forgives them. After all those things they've done, he forgives them. And I think that's what I want to, two things I want us to see and connect in the remainder of the sermon here in chapter 45 is God's providence and forgiveness. Because clearly, if we take this story seriously, and we do, they're tied together. God's providence and a healthy and robust biblical understanding of God's providence and forgiveness. What is it that enables Joseph to give his brothers? He understands God's providence. He understands that God is the one who's ultimately brought him to Egypt. God is orchestrating all these circumstances in his life, not the brothers. They're just pawns in the game. God's game, as it turns out. And he's moving the pieces on the board. He's check and checkmate, right? That's God. He's able to forgive. He understands that even our evil actions were ordained or permitted by God for, for his good and God's glory. Knowing God this way leads Joseph to trust God, trust in his promises, and that liberates Joseph to forgive his brothers. I mean, they hated him. Look at what they'd done to him. They hated him when he showed up at Dothan after their father sent him there to check on him. They conspired to kill him, threw him into a pit, sold him down the river into slavery. Ripped up his coat of many colors. Man, what an audacious thing. He must have loved that coat. They ripped it up right in front of him. Joseph winds up in prison. He's falsely accused. One of Pharaoh's officials, Potiphar's wife, she comes on to him. He won't cave. He won't give in to her to have an affair with her. So she accuses him of coming on to her, and they throw him in prison. Look at all this stuff. And the brothers, who caused it? Who's the secondary cause? The brothers. Who's God using to bring about these circumstances, these events? It's God. He's using the brothers. Brothers. And yet Joseph did not give in to bitterness. Do they deserve forgiveness? Do those who sin against you, do they deserve forgiveness? Best illustration I've ever heard of this, the story of a girl named Jennifer Thompson. Listen to this story. 22-year-old student from Elon College, North Carolina. Summer of 1984, a man broke into her apartment and raped her at knife point. 
And as she lay there, she was a brilliant girl, and she thought, I'm going to get a good look at him if he don't kill me. I'm going to be able to, I'm going to, be able to, to describe him to the cops and to the courts, and he's going to be arrested. And as it happened, he raped her, he left her, she knew what he looked like, and eventually she picked a man out of a police lineup who was her rapist, a man named Ronald Cotton. That's him. I'll never forget him. I'll never forget what he looks like. I've got a good look at him, and that's him. Ronald Cotton. So he was tried, convicted, and sentenced to life in prison. Ronald Cotton. After a few years, after two years, Ronald Cotton, convicted, but received another trial, a retrial. Other evidence had come to light, but then he's reconvicted and resentenced to life in prison. He's so Jennifer Thompson's done with Ronald Cotton, or so she thinks. Fast forward to 1995, 1984. Fast forward to 1995. Eleven years passed. Jennifer Thompson gets married, even has triplets, has a happy family. He's trying to forget the trauma she experienced from from the rape, and largely gets over it. And one day, there's a knock on the door. And prosecution says, we'd like a blood sample from you. We think we have some evidence. She gives it. The unthinkable happened. They came back and said, Ronald Cotton could not have done this and did not do this. Ronald Cotton had nothing to do with this. Been in prison for 11 years, right? 11 years. So Ronald Cotton was set free. The evidence showed that a man, another man named uh, Bobby Poole was in fact her rapist. He was arrested, tried, convicted, sentenced to life in prison. Ronald Cotton was let go. Here's what happens. Of course, Jennifer Thompson is weighed down, just wrecked and wrecked with guilt, as we should be, because she's cost this man 11 years of his life for her testimony. Here's how the newspaper report a few years later described this. For two years, after learning that Cotton was innocent, Jennifer Thompson never stopped feeling ashamed. Over and over she wondered, how could she have made such a terrible mistake? And wouldn't you? He was innocent. Ronald Cotton. And what of the man whose life she had ruined? All those years, locked away from his family. Now that he was free, did he hate her as much as she hated herself? Then one day she stopped crying. She knew exactly what she had to do. A week later, she drove 50 miles to a church in the town where she was raped. She had prayed for the strength to face this moment. She had prayed for the strength to face Ronald Cotton. She was going to go meet him. I'm sorry, she said. If I spent every day for the rest of my life telling you how sorry I am, it wouldn't come close to what I feel. Ronald Cotton was calm and quiet. And finally he spoke, I'm not mad at you. I've never been mad at you. I just want you to have a good life. I forgive you. For two hours they sat and talked while their families paced outside. They talked about the pitfalls of memory, the power of faith, the miracle of DNA. They talked about Bobby Poole. We were both his victims, his victims, Cotton said. Thompson nodded in agreement. As dusk fell, they made their way out of the church. In the parking lot, their families, weeping, Jennifer Thompson and Ronald Cotton, embraced. They remain friends to this day. 
miracles, here's what happened. Ronald Cotton went to prison. He was a godless man and had lived a godless life as a young man involved in petty crimes. He went to prison, wanted his relatives shared the gospel with him, and during his 11 years in prison, he comes to know Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. And he said, it's that that enables me to forgive you because of the debt of sin I've been forgiven. That story amazes me. This is what Joseph did. This is it. His brothers have done all the same things. They've wrecked his life. Or they intended to wreck his life. He forgave them. Could you forgive? Could you forgive Ronald Cotton? Could you forgive the brothers? Is it in your heart to forgive those who sin against you? Must we forgive? You will say, well, where does the Bible say we must forgive? Well, in plenty of places. Ephesians 4.32, be kind and compassionate to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. You've been forgiven, you must forgive. Colossians 3.12 and 13, put on then as God's chosen ones, that's his elect, us as people, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. This is hard, isn't it? And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must not try, not think about it, not consider it, not weigh it. You must forgive others. You must forgive. It's the calling of a Christian to do what Joseph did. We must forgive. Do what Ronald Cotton did. Joseph is the best Old Testament illustration of forgiveness. One of the best illustrations of the Bible. In the New Testament, I think of the, of the parable of the unforgiving servant in uh, Matthew 18. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but verses 21 to 22, Jesus says, Then Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Seven times. And Peter's thinking, <laughs> seven times, that's pretty good. And Jesus said, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. Infinitely. It's not 490 times. And then 491st time, you can be angry and bitter and unforgiving. Unforgiving loud. No, that's not what he's saying. Seven's a number of completeness and perfection in Scripture. You must forgive. And he goes on to tell a parable about the unforgiving servant who forgiven for owing the, the king like a billion dollar debt. And then he gets out of, the king forgives the debt, he goes out and someone owes him $25 and he has that guy thrown in jail. Because he doesn't understand the load of debt he's been forgiven. And that's who we are when we're unforgiving and we're bitter toward those who've wronged us, who've sinned against us. We don't understand the load of sin that we've been forgiven, that Christ has paid for at Calvary. Seventy times seven. Joseph understood that, didn't he? One of the best books I've ever read on forgiveness is called Unpacking Forgiveness by a man. God's become a friend of mine named Chris Brauns, B-R-A-U-N-S. Look it up later. Get the book and read it. He says, forgiveness is committed by the offended to pardon graciously the repentant for moral liability and to be reconciled to that person, although not all consequences are necessarily eliminated. Forgiveness is a commitment by the offended to pardon graciously the repentant from moral liability and be reconciled to that person. Ronald Cotton, Jennifer Thompson, Joseph and his brothers. How does Joseph put this into practice? 
Well, he made a commitment to pardon his repentant brothers. He stood by that commitment the rest of his life. He forgave them graciously. He offered forgiveness as a free gift. He was reconciled to his brothers. He didn't pardon them and then tell them to get out of my sight. Okay, I forgive you. Get out of my sight. I don't even want to see you anymore. I can't imagine us doing that. You're so pathetic. I hate you so much. Get out of my sight. I forgive you. That's not forgiveness. Reconciliation. That's forgiveness. He was reconciled to his brothers. He committed providing for his brothers and their families. He spoke tender words to them. Tender words. Gracious words. Kind words. And he defeated bitterness. The only way you'll defeat bitterness is by resting in the providence of God. You see how practical this doctrine is? You'll only defeat bitterness and extend forgiveness and reconciliation to those who've maybe even unjustly. And these are both two instances of injustice of Joseph and then Ronald Cotton. Only when you understand that God is sovereign over even those circumstances. What does forgiveness look like to us? Or do we automatically forgive? We see that I just forgive you. I'm going to argue something that's controversial, and you may not agree with me. That's fine. We can talk about it later. I believe forgiveness is conditional in Scripture. You say, well, gosh, I thought we just said forgive. To which I say, what if the guy didn't want to be? I've not done anything wrong to you. I don't care if you do forgive me. I don't really care. Well, that's why it's conditional. Jesus said in Luke 17, if your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. If he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day, there it is again seven times, and turns to you seven times saying, saying, I repent, you must forgive. But it is conditional, I repent. So what should your posture be? Well, a willingness to forgive. That's always the posture of the Christian. Just like God is willing to forgive all the sinners, all who will come to him, we're willing to forgive others. And that's our posture. But if they repent, did the brothers repent? Well, Genesis chapter 50. Yes, they did. Verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. (laughs) He's going to get us back. Vendetta. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression. And this this is the brother's words. Now please forgive the transgressions of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. They're bowing down before him in repentance and reconciliation. They repented and they're reconciled to him. Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for I am I in the place of God. I can't judge you. Am I in the place of God? And what we're going to focus on next week is this verse. As for you, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good. We're going to, so bring it about, to, to, bring it, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. And thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. They came and they repented and he forgave them, but it was conditional. Pop psychology and the drive for therapy has made forgiveness unconditional today. And I think that's grossly unbiblical. Many churches teach this. You just have to forgive. No, you don't. But you don't harbor bitterness and unforgiveness. You're willing to forgive 
But full reconciliation demands repentance, just like it does to Jesus. Jesus doesn't just forgive the whole world and say, well, you all hate me, you call me names, you nail me to the cross, and I forgive you, I love you this much, like the t-shirt, you know, and you forgive. No. So if you've sinned against someone, you must repent. They're not just going to say, well, I forgive you, even though you hate me, you're spitting in my face, and you say you've done nothing wrong, you call me a bunch of names, a whole slew of names, I forgive you anyway. That's not what reconciliation looks like. Jesus said, very, very clearly in Luke 17, isn't it? If he comes to you seven times and says, I repent, forgive him. I want that to be a corrective to our thinking in the church about reconciliation and forgiveness. Always in the posture of forgiveness, always willing, but there must be reconciliation. And you may, be, you may say, well, they won't repent. Well, you're, you know, Romans 12 says, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Vengeance is mine, thus saith the Lord, I will repay. You don't worry about that, but you be willing to forgive. And you've done everything you can to live at peace. You've tried to reconcile. They won't reconcile to you. Then that's on them. So that's our posture. That's our posture. But the brothers repented. And we know from 2 Timothy 2, God grants repentance, right? It's God who gives repentance. How do we, we want someone to repent, pray for repentance. But we're often so hesitant to forgive, aren't we? Why, oh why, when it's so clear in Scripture, are we so hesitant to forgive others of the most trifling sins or matters they've committed against us? Why? I mean, we, I think we believe that the other person has done something too heinous to forgive. We're so great, you should never have offended someone as great as me, and these sins are just too heinous to forgive. Look at the cross. Or we suffer from what Paul Tripp calls identity amnesia. We are guilty of the sin of the unforgiving servant. And we forget the massive load of debt we've been forgiven in Christ. We have identity amnesia. We're forgiven sinners. We're going to be unforgiving. We'll hold this against you. We enjoy playing the role of the martyr. We wallow in self-pity crying, woe is me. Man, is this ever true in the church and outside the church? We love self-pity, don't we? is a sin, which is self-love, an expression of self-love. We enjoy playing the role of a martyr. We, we love that. We love asserting our rights and whining about the injustice done to us. Boy, is that ever popular today. We just whine about it. Don't we? So look at me. I've had the worst life of anyone ever. Don't ever say that. I don't say that because someone has, there's so many bad lives, aren't there? We nurse our grievances. We, I know I've met people, I've counseled people, they love their grievances. They love their bitter. They don't let go of it because that would not give them something to complain about, right? They're like Frank Costanza. They want to celebrate Festivus for the rest of us, right? The airing of grievances every single day. The airing of grievances. They, they, they nurse this, we, but we do this too. Or we think, well, they'll take advantage of us. You don't know this person. I forgive them. They're going to take full advantage of me. You think Jesus was taking advantage of them? Maybe. We withhold forgiveness or unforgiveness over the other person's head, and they won't take advantage of us, and we kind of have a power over them because we've got this against you. How ungodly is that of us, though, right? Here's the bottom line. We think far too little of the debt God has forgiven us, and the grace is extended us when we are bitter toward other people and harbor unforgiveness. We just don't even take the cross seriously when we do that. We trivialize the gospel and our experience of it. I mean, Luke 7, that... 
House of the Simon of Simon the Pharisee, a sinful woman, likely a prostitute, anoints Jesus' feet with expensive ointment, and then she weeps over her sin and she wipes his feet with her hair. And Simon's like, well, sinful woman, why is Jesus letting that sinful woman touch him? And Jesus corrects him and says, Simon, Simon, her sins are great. But I've come in here and she's not, not, not stopped weeping over her sins and not stopped wiping my feet with her sins. What have you done? You've done nothing. You're just self-righteous. Her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but, she, but he who is forgiven little loves little. The bigger the debt, the more you're going to love because the more you're going to appreciate the forgiveness. And you're going to love much. A failure to forgive is a failure to love. It's a love disorder when we fail to forgive. Here's the thing. Bitterness won't harm the person you don't like. You get that? Bitterness is going to eat you alive. It'll harm you. It will take you down potentially. It won't touch the other person. It's not an effective weapon. Satan uses it to destroy you. Destroy you. Joseph forgave his brothers. Are you harboring bitterness and resentment towards somebody? Surely someone in here is, and maybe I am. You have to ask ourselves this because we think so highly of ourselves. We really do. We don't think, we, we, we have a very low view sometimes, I think, of sin and our own sin. And a very low view of the holiness of God that leads to the view, the low view of sin. Joseph forgave his brothers. Brothers and sisters, we live on this side of the cross. And we've experienced the grace of God. We've been forgiven this massive, monstrous load of debt that we committed, that we had piled up. How much more should we be willing to forgive others from the heart? Because you're never being more like Christ when you're forgiving someone else from your heart. God's providence, you see this? God's providence, robust understanding of God's providence and meditating, reflecting regularly on God's providence and sovereignty in our circumstances. Free to forgive just like. You've been reconciled to God. God. You hear that? Reconciled. If you're in Christ, you're reconciled to God. Now go and be reconciled to one another. Father, I pray that if there's bitterness in this congregation, if we have been if sinned against or if we've sinned against someone, another person, Grant repentance and reconciliation, God, just like Joseph, just like Ronald Cotton. Father, we would see your hand behind everything that happens, good or bad, in our narrative, our circumstances. We would understand that in 10,000 ways that we cannot see and may never understand, that you're at work.
work in us, you're at work through us. I pray that you grant us grace to go, be willing to forgive everyone who sinned against us. And if we've sinned against someone, to make it right. Because it is conditional. We go and say, I have sinned against you. Please forgive me. Receive full reconciliation and give the world a beautiful picture of the cross of Jesus Christ. Oh God, do this for your glory.